Greetings and salutations, board game fans. The Dice Pirates are back with episode 20, and today we're going to be talking about how to be a good dungeon master. Of course, we are well known for loving D&D here, and of course a big part of that is how do you run a game. I'm joined by Matt. How you doing, Matt? Magic Missile! Oh, this, what's up? Just, uh, I'm good. I'm so pumped to play D&D. I've got my uh, wizard robe on. Uh, I got my authentic D&D cartoon from the 80s, Archmaid Robe, on, and I shaved my head, and I'm ready to talk about D&D. We are also super excited today to have Jim with us from the Instagram account, Epic Jim. Of course, you are a, a very established and very storied dungeon master and D&D player in your own right. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your kind of history with D&D, and what you're up to right now. I haven't been playing D&D for that long, only about five or six years, like right then to fourth edition. But my love for fantasy goes back for as far as I can remember. My mom, she was always into wizards and pirates and dragons and all that cool stuff. And then Lord of the Rings, the movies came out when I was in junior high. So like, of course, that took my expectations of fantasy to a next level. And uh, yeah, but yeah, about five or six years ago, I started uh, collecting and playing and it's been a slippery slope ever since. You got bit by the D&D bug hard, and uh, your collection of memorabilia and stuff is really impressive. If you follow Jim on Instagram, you've probably seen uh, pictures and updates from his uh, fungeon, his uh, epic uh, game room. And uh, we're looking at him now in video chat with a giant beholder looming over his head. Tell us a little bit about, I was curious about just the process of building up your, your game space. How did you get started making this like awesome kind of dedicated gaming room in your house? Ah, uh, well, my wonderful wife let me keep all the D&D stuff in the living room until I outgrew that. And then, yeah, we had uh, our basement was unfinished and this was the perfect opera. I was like, why don't I turn that into the gaming space? Like, what am I doing? So, yeah, my wife built uh, my custom table. I don't know if you guys seen that, but there's a 42 inch TV in there so I can do uh, the digital maps and stuff. Yeah, and then I just kept collecting and, you know, all the glass cases and all that. You got to display all the old minis and. I really love the table uh, with the TV in it for creating like game spaces. And I think when we get into our discussion about DMing, we can kind of talk about how you use that because that's probably a really fun way to kind of bring the tablescape alive and, and, and create an environment for your players. So that, that's really cool. The last thing I wanted to mention to you at the top too was you, I know, have posted uh, several times recently about your love of the classic D&D setting, uh, Dragonlance which just now we're starting to see might be coming back again. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? That's a venerable old uh, D&D setting that was hugely popular in the 80s and 90s and kind of has gone away. What do, you, what do you think about them maybe ringing that back? Well, just for the mini's sake, I really hope that they do. But as stories and all that, um, I'm not like super stoked on how Wizards of the Coast is handling everything. So I'm going to try to think of everything in the past that, that they can't touch that. And this is kind of like an alternate universe Dragonlance. Like, I don't know, cautiously optimistic, I guess. Yeah, I'd be curious to see what they do with that with that venerable old story. If, uh, if you never read it, those original Dragonlance novels are probably... Some of the most beloved of like D and D media, uh, right up there with Driss stuff from uh, R. A. Salvatore. So um, yeah, I'd be curious to see what they do with that. But thanks for being here with us and, and geeking out with us a little bit about D and D. Yeah, my pleasure. We're of course very excited to get into that. So we're gonna go ahead and move on to our soapbox topics real quick. And I just want to talk a little bit about the rising costs of shipping 
that we've seen lately. We've seen, you know, of course, due to not only the pandemic, but many, many other situations that have arisen, partially because of the blocking of the canal recently and other factors that are in play. We've seen massive, massive increases in the cost of shipping containers. And especially this is going to affect all, uh, all board game publishers, of course, but especially Kickstarters, who are often operating on very tight margins. We did talk about that with Jamie Stegmeier a couple episodes back, and we kind of broke down just how thin a lot of those margins can be. And so for a lot of these, especially smaller individuals and smaller studios that are putting Kickstarters up, and they're expecting a certain price for shipping for example like a, a normal cost would be probably around two to three thousand for a 40-foot container over the last 12 months that's skyrocketed from around three thousand to twenty one thousand dollars for a 40-foot container oh wow orders of magnitude higher and i guess really my soapbox here is just be patient with you know a lot of these especially smaller kickstarters moving forward because we're going to see some major backups. There's going to be a lot of issues getting games to people. There's going to be a lot of issues getting games to shelves because they're not going to be able to pay that cost. They're not expecting to. It wasn't factored in. And so there may be a lot of delays. There may be asking for more money. Just have a little bit of patience as we move forward and we sort of deal with the ramifications of the last couple of years and just be kind of ready to, to ride these things out because, you know, they want to get they want to get their product to you as much as you want to play it. And, you know, just a little bit of understanding, I think, goes a long way. This is crazy how uh, the cost of everything, supplies, uh, not just in gaming, but just all across the, you know, in any part of the economy is getting like higher. And uh, but for us in the game hobby, what makes me concerned is that some of these costs will start to get passed on to consumers. And I really worry about games, expansions, uh, mini packs and things like that all getting, you know, more expensive over the next few years if these prices don't come down. I mean, gaming is not a cheap hobby anyway. So <laughs> the last thing we want is you know, more costs uh, getting passed on to us. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see for sure. But of course, you know, I just wanted to, to bring that up briefly. Matt, I know you have a soapbox topic for us as well that's also a little more D&D related. So several episodes back, I talked a little bit about a tabletop game uh, book that I had picked up around Christmas called Mirkborg. If you're looking for it online, it looks like Morkborg, M-O-R-K-B-O-R-G. Uh, that is Swedish, I believe. For Dark Fort, so it's Mirkborg, and it is a tremendous little role-playing uh, book and system that is in the old-school revival tradition. If you're not familiar with that, the OSR scene is this kind of growing space where people are trying to capture the feel of like 70s and 80s era like tabletop games that were a little bit more streamlined in their rules. A little less uh, emphasis on story and more on just pure dungeon crawling and action. And a little bit grittier often in their world building and presentation. And Merkborg is the current system that is really kind of setting the whole OSR scene on fire. And it has won a ton of awards for its art and design and its rule set. I talked about it briefly back when I got the book around Christmas time, but it took, you know, the better part of a year for me to actually get a group together, in particular because this was a game that I really wanted to play uh, face-to-face. So I was waiting until vaccines and, and, and sort of a return to normalcy, which, fingers crossed, will stay around. But was able to get a group together about a month ago, and we finally sat down to play the game, and it totally lived up to all of the hype. It's a little bit difficult to kind of capture what makes it fun. There's two things you got to know about Merkborg. One is you it, it bears repeating talking about just how awesome the book is. It's got some of the most incredible 
art and design. If you're a fan of like fantasy stuff, fantasy art, fantasy collectibles, it's almost worth picking up this book just to have it as an art book. It's a really fun read. And the way it sketches out this strange and dark world in uh, very broad strokes, but enough to kind of like get you excited, is really masterfully done. The setting is a kind of bleak medieval world that's somewhere between like Dark Souls and Nightmare Before Christmas. This kind of twisted uh, world that is fantastical, but also a dying world. A heavy part of the game is this idea that the world is ending. And in fact, one of the really clever mechanics is that the DM uh, or the game master in each session will roll a die to see how close it is to the end of the world. And if you roll a certain combination of die, it's just the game. The campaign's just over. You know, the world has ended. So there's a real sense of impending doom. The game itself is just a remarkably simplified version of D&D. Everything runs off of uh, just simple D20 rolls with very few modifiers. It takes 10 minutes to roll up a character and get to playing. And a huge portion of the game is left up to the DM to kind of interpret and to freestyle. And that's what really sets it apart from traditional Dungeons & Dragons is it's uh, more freeform and improvisational between you and the players. So even though it's a really simple system to learn and play, I actually think it's probably, uh, ironically, like better reserved for more experienced role players. Because there's a lot of things you kind of have to know on instinct, how to like create the rhythm of combat in a scenario, because the rules really aren't there for it in black and white. You kind of have to be comfortable improvising a lot. Uh, Jim, I'm curious. Yeah, I know you play a lot of tabletop stuff. Have you heard about Morkboard? Do you have any thoughts about it? I've just a lot of people have recommended it to me, but that's it. I I haven't checked it out yet, but I definitely will after this. Yeah, how do you feel about like that sort of more free form kind of D and D alternative? You can play D and D in that way, but do you enjoy that style of play as well? The more improv focused, really kind of making it up as you go, or kind of which do you do you find yourself uh, enjoying more as you play? Oh yeah, I love that. That's my jam. I, I love when it's uh, when you don't know what's behind that next door. You don't know what they're gonna do next, right? Because then it's more of a uh, table, like the whole uh, tabletop experience. Everyone collaborative uh, storytelling than just like a dungeon master running a couple people through a dungeon or whatever, right? It does that really well because a large part of this game of Merkboard is actually character and flavor that doesn't have a lot of like impact on the game unless you roleplay it and make it. For instance, when you're rolling up your character, you roll for like various like bad habits and you roll for like a physical deformity. So your character may have like a club foot or be like weirdly ugly or smell bad. Or you might be uh, a hilarious flaw that you can roll is that your character will compulsively whistle if you're trying to hide. And so when you try to when you're trying to do something stealthy, you have to roll. If you happen to roll that trade, you have to roll some dice to see if your character just like uh, nervously starts whistling and like blows your thing. So there's all of these little like flavor things that just make the characters more rich. They're like messed up, gnarly characters. They're not traditional heroes by any means. The things about it that I think are worth knowing before you get into it too is it isn't really built in my mind for uh, campaign style play unless you're prepared as the DM to do a lot of work to flesh it out. The book itself is really short by role-playing manual standards and as a result there isn't a lot of content there for like scenarios beyond just like an introductory dungeon and there isn't a lot of detail about the setting other than just like names of cities and short descriptions. There's a lot of flavor there, but there's not a lot of substance. So if your characters are going to want to do a lot of adventuring in this world, you're going to have to do a lot of writing, do a lot of freestyling to kind of make it work. Now, they have put out a lot of supplemental material online. 
tables and things, ways to generate dungeons. They, they're, they're supporting it, and there's a big community around it. So you can kind of make it work, but it takes a little bit more homework than just picking up a D&D you know, source book and kind of adapting it. Uh, the other thing to know about the game is in the because it's in the OSR traditions, it's really, really hard. Your, your characters will most likely die. Like, we narrowly avoided a total party kill several times when I played it, uh, which is fun. It's a great wake-up call when uh, players have been playing, like, D&D 5e, and they get in a fight with some guards, and they think they're going to, like, mow through them, and they realize that, like, oh, like, one hit can almost kill me. It's like the damage is almost kind of realistic. Like, you might have four hit points, and a longsword can do six damage, or D6 damage. So you can easily get one shot killed by just an average guard. So you've got to be really smart about how you approach combat and try to avoid it uh, altogether if you can. It's, uh, it's really, really cool. I like it a lot. I'm looking forward to playing it again. I'm definitely excited to play it at some point as well. Hopefully we can get a session in the next time we end up, you know, in the, in the same place. That'd be pretty fun. I do want to throw it to you now, Jim, as well, because I know that you have a soapbox that you want to talk about. And I believe you're going to be talking about Magic the Gathering with D&D. They did a crossover. I've seen this mentioned. I've seen some news about it, but I don't really know a lot about it. So break that down for us. Yeah, actually, right after this podcast, I got some buddies coming over and we're going to open up a booster box and do a draft or whatever. But So I haven't uh, checked out the cards yet, but yeah, I was just wondering what you guys thought about like D&D and Magic crossing over. Like I find I don't mind uh, D&D in my Magic, but I don't really like Magic into my D&D. I kind of wish that they would stick with more traditional fantasy settings. I know, but yeah, I'm excited. Like the cards for the art, right? Yeah, that's really cool. So basically, they're coming out with a, a new set of magic that is uh, in traditional like D&D uh, setting, right? Like you'll have D&D characters and spells and stuff that they're pulling out of the larger like D&D mythos and building a magic game around it. What we haven't seen as much is it, like you said, coming the other way, building campaigns set in the kind of weird world of magic. Uh, and I got to agree with you. I don't think that's as good a fit because magic um is a fun game i was heavy into magic in the early days like uh in the 90s and early 2000s i haven't played it in a long long time but it never seemed to me to have a cohesive lore and story that was very engaging and uh despite the fact that over the years they've desperately tried to come up with a few like flagship characters to kind of get you excited about and they've tried to flesh out the world that magic is supposed to be in more it just never really gelled to me. Uh, part of it's just because the very nature of magic is all about these planes that are disparate and weird, and so it doesn't have like a traditional fantasy vibe, like you mentioned, and it also doesn't have like one cohesive like look and feel. It just never really has held together. So I couldn't imagine playing campaign of D anD D and the Magic the Gathering like setting. That just doesn't even feel very interesting to me at all. And they have three books now, I believe from magic settings in D&D. That's quite interesting. I guess I'm I'm curious as to like how that crossover is it something that they're trying to incorporate long term? Like is this sort of a they're doing it now but it won't be a consistent thing or is this going to be kind of more of a, the approach that they're going to be taking moving forward? You know, it's really like I think what we're seeing is they're really trying to unify their product base a little bit more. You got to remember for a long time there was a period of time there when Magic the Gathering was the moneymaker by far over D&D for Wizards of the Coast. In fact, you know, Wizards of the Coast bought D&D from TSR, uh, gosh, I don't even remember, sometime in the early 2000s. That was at an era when D&D was not nearly as ubiquitous and massively popular as it was right now, especially around that fourth edition time frame. 
when they were really trying to figure out what to do with Dungeons & Dragons, how to make it relevant again. And so now, all of a sudden, the tables have really turned. I mean, Magic is obviously still tremendously popular, has huge tournament play, but for the first time in a long time, D&D has caught up in popularity. 5e has been such a huge success. More and more people are playing it, and so now, instead of these two separate product lines that have no connection, they're trying to to weave them together uh, a little more. Um, I mean, it can work. I mean, D&D has the potential in its, like, canon to have multiple planes. And, of course, you know, everybody's D&D session can have its own canon and, and stuff like that. The only thing that I, I just wouldn't want to see is, like, any kind of, like, hint of trying to replicate uh, Magic's, like, strange, like, Magic system into, like, the rules of Magic for how you do it in uh, D&D. That would be weird. I don't know. I've never really talked about that. But to me, that's where it would probably come apart. That or like uh, seeing Rick and Morty magic cards or, you know, like where do you draw the line, right? Yeah, there's probably a point where fans of like one or the other would get a little bit like, I don't know, like resistant to it. You know what I mean? Because they have been separate for for so long. I know there's probably a lot of people who play magic that don't want to have anything to do with D&D because it's a very different experience. I mean, magic is a strategy game. It's a mathy game. It's not really story driven at all. It's a totally different experience, even though they both have their roots in this idea of like fantasy tabletop experiences magic's totally different than dnd in fact when we get into our main topic discussion you'll see i mean some of the things that you're doing and thinking about uh when you're playing dungeons and dragons is way more about collaborative storytelling than it is about trying to string together some kind of amazing points combo and land some kind of huge attack even though there's always that power gamer at the table who is trying to string together some incredible uh attack for like huge points i'm looking at you ian how many times can you really cast fireball in a in a session? You're you're abusing your spell slots, sir. I've I've seen it happen. I will cast fireball as many times as you'll let me before I can't get away with it any longer. And I'm pretty sure that's the acceptable answer to that question always. We always do like to play just a short little game to kind of loosen things up and have a little fun with things before we move into our main topic. And today, we actually have something new that we decided to call the good, the bad, and the neutral. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw to you guys, I'm going to go ahead and throw a fictional character, and I want you guys to come up with what that character's alignment would be, and give me an argument for why you think that. So to start us off, I'm going to jump in with a character that I'm pretty sure you guys are both pretty familiar with. What alignment do you think Boromir would have from Lord of the Rings if you had to give him one? Oh, man, that was a hard one right off the gate. Mm. Boromir. Yeah. I think he's lawful, right, Jim? I mean, I think because it's like he definitely believes in a code and, like, following the the rules, right? So he's sort of a classic knight in that way, don't you think? Yeah, definitely lawful. And I'm st- I'm thinking a little neutral because he's not pure good, you know, because he wants the ring. <laughs> I agree. It's like he probably sees I – was, I was thinking the same thing, neutral. He probably sees himself as lawful good. Right, because he's the ultimate embodiment of Gondor and doing what it takes to preserve the kingdom. But that's the key: is like he's willing to do whatever it takes, even if it's crossing over into darkness. And so, yeah, I think he's probably uh, he's probably lawful and neutral. He's definitely not evil, but he maybe could have been if he had gone all the way and gotten the ring. I'm gonna say lawful and neutral. Yeah. All right, so for my next one, a very popular character, and maybe maybe this one will be a little bit easier. If you guys had to give an alignment to Batman, what would you get? What would you make his alignment? Because you know, I feel, I feel like he could be over the place, but where where does he land for you? I'd say lawful good. 
He won't kill. Waffle good. That's interesting. Because I actually went chaotic right away. I think he's chaotic good. And I think it's because, like, here's where I come down on it. As I, when I, like, try to explain, like, chaotic and waffle to people. So, like, a waffle character is going to almost always follow the rules of the society or, like, structure that they're in. But a chaotic character will break the rules if it means getting towards, like, their definition of, like, good or, or, or evil. So Superman, to me, is lawful good, right? Because he, he's always in line with, like, the government. You see him all the time, like, supporting the institutions. But uh, Batman will straight up punch a cop. Batman, Batman will punch a cop all day if he's, like, in between uh, him and, like, his objective. So I think Batman's chaotic. Yeah, I'd say com- the comics Batman is chaotic good, and then the movie Batman is probably lawful good. Seems kind of how they do that. I want to go ahead and give you guys one more, just kind of fun at the very end. If you guys had to give an alignment to Jack Sparrow of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, what would his alignment be? <laughs> oh, that's a hard one, man. What is his alignment? Cause I don't even. What is his goal, really, in those movies? Chaotic neutral. He's just about himself, and he doesn't care what happens to anybody <laughs> except himself. That's so true. That's, that is sort of the classic chaotic neutral, right? Because he's definitely not lawful. There's never a point in the movie where he feels compelled to like follow the rules, to do what anybody <laughs> says. But he's also, he's not, he's not evil. He's, he's uh, you know, he never actually, he's, he's not intentionally trying to harm anybody. But he's out for his own self-interest, whatever it is. So he's definitely chaotic neutral. And he's not pure neutral, even though I think pure neutral is a problematic alignment that doesn't actually exist. Hot take. But I think, yeah, I, I, I'm on board with that. Jack Sparrow, chaotic neutral. It's a pretty good place to land, I think. We are going to go ahead and move on to our main discussion. Now we're going to be talking about how to be a dungeon master and all things D&D. We're going to go ahead and get to that in just a minute. We'll be right back. All right, and welcome back to the Dice Pirates. And we're going to go ahead and dive into our main topic for today, which is how to become a dungeon master. This is a topic that has been on my mind since a few months ago when we did our intro to D&D because uh, running the game, being the game master, the dungeon master, is such a unique part of the tabletop uh, role-playing experience. It's something that really separates tabletop role-playing from other types of tabletop gaming activities because there's one player around the table who has this incredibly unique role that's a hybrid of a referee a storyteller the ai powering the enemies and traps and you have to juggle uh, a lot of different things and i think because of that uh becoming the dungeon master is something that i think is uh can be a little intimidating it can be a role that nobody really wants to take on but if you want to get into the hobby uh with you and your friends somebody's got to be willing to put on uh the dungeon master hat which is an official hat licensed by Wizards of the Coast. If no one's willing to take on that role, then nobody's ever going to play. So I thought it'd be fun to do a whole episode where we kind of destigmatize some of the challenges of it and get you ready to run your very first game. And so uh, to do that, we uh, wanted to bring in another experienced uh, D&D player. That is uh, Epic Jim from Instagram, who uh, has a solid following in the D&D community. Jim sent us a few uh, tips and pointers to kind of get us going. I, I want to kind of start the discussion, though, by saying, uh, Jim, tell us about getting started and running your first game as a DM. What was that like? 
So, yeah, it was pretty crazy because I dungeon mastered before I was a player in D&D. Oh, wow. And I DM'd for like some veteran players. So, yeah, I just I watched some Critical Role and I was watching it and I was like, man, this is amazing. And then like, you know, Matt Mercer gave me the confidence and I was like, I could do that. Right. So, of course, like I over prepped so much. Yeah. If like that's the biggest thing, like don't over prep. <laughs> You'll waste so much time because your players will just throw all that out the window. That's sort of the classic mistake that a lot of people make. And uh, we can dig into that a little more. But I'm curious. I mean, uh, that's kind of the reverse experience. Most people will play at least get a couple of games under their belt before they dive in. Uh, was dungeon mastering like running the game? But did that just have like a special appeal to you that you wanted to do that first? Oh, yeah, like world building. Like I love drawing maps or thinking of encounters or thinking of ways how to surprise my players and stuff. So, yeah, no, it was I just wanted to DM, but I, I love being a player, too. So I am I am curious because you said you jumped right into dungeon mastering and obviously you watched some critical role. But what all was your preparation for being in the dungeon master role? Not so much the the session itself, but what was your process to really step into the dungeon master role? I I read a little bit of the DMG, a little bit of the player's handbook. Mostly, I was just worried about like story, and like I said, I over prepped, way over prepped. I was making lore on every statue and bush and twig in the entire place <laughs> and i was just uh for rules and stuff i uh wanted to lean on the like more experienced players so i was hoping that they could like jump in and if i was you know really screwing something up they could be like oh well it goes this way or you don't have to know the rules like the back of your hand as much as you might think and that's kind of a misconception i mean uh D has a lot of rules uh any game that's trying to simulate essentially all aspects of the physical world movement and weather and combat and how long somebody needs to sleep and whether or not elves even sleep and all these different minute things <laughs> it can be overwhelming to think of us oh gosh i gotta hold all this in my head they actually don't because one uh if you if you don't know and nobody around the table knows you can make a call you know as long as you're consistent and in fact the the rules the wizard of the coast rules actually encourage that rather than bog the game down and like flip it through an index uh just make a call that everybody can live with and be consistent with it and then you just keep the game moving and the other thing like you mentioned is that more experienced players will rule police you and they will keep you on track they're not going to let you uh fudge that like opportunity attack or whatever like they know uh what they need to do with their rules and then yeah and then that uh session went really well and everyone was laughing and having a good time even though i screwed up a bunch and and then that's where I really realized I had to roll with the punches because you can't just over prep because your players are always going to do something that you don't expect. That's a viewpoint that I actually wasn't like I didn't think about. And I was interested when you said that because I personally have not ever been a dungeon master. And so this is really enlightening for me. And when you kind of talk about, you know, like having to roll with the punches, do you ever sort of feel like the punching bag kind of in the middle of the table like everyone's doing their thing and they're kind of coming after you does it feel like that or do you feel like more like you're, you're getting to play how does that actually feel um maybe like a punching bag but in a good way like i love not knowing and it's just it really uh helps your improv skills right you always gotta be thinking the next step and uh roll charts those are huge for that always having something you can fall back on Two points I want to make. One is to the over-prepping. That is the classic uh, DM beginner mistake. And I did the same thing. I came to... I was interested in DMing because I love fantasy stories. And I write 
fantasy stories on the side. So the first couple of times that uh, we played D&D and Ian is in my D&D group, I wrote out like elaborate descriptions of places and things. And I had tons of narrative beats that like I wanted to get to and backstories and characters. And it was going to be amazing. It was going to be the uh, the most powerful fantasy story that's yet been told. And uh, almost immediately, the people, you know, the players are like, eh, what's down that hallway? And you're like, I don't I don't know, a bathroom? Let's go to the bathroom. What's, uh, what do you want to do in the bathroom? Do a wisdom check on the toilet. You know, and now you're just like making stuff up. And next thing you know, you're in the Mushroom Kingdom fighting, you know, in the sewers. And then and you, none of that. And everything you wrote, you got to ball up and throw away. And so really quickly, I realized that like, okay, when I prep for a session, I will literally grab a piece of paper and I'll write down maybe like three possible things that could happen if they trigger it. Like this character has a side quest. They might go here. Uh, This character might show up and introduce this or this. And it varies very loose. And then I'll just keep that beside me while we're playing. And if the opportunity is right, I'll introduce one of those story beats that are sort of original. And otherwise... Just let the players guide the story. Where do you guys want to go today? You know, is kind of my philosophy. I found uh, two of the side quests. I quit giving them to NPCs. I just have side quests now, and then I wait for them to talk to any NPC. Then that's the NPC that has the side quest. Because <laughs> they would always skirt the ones that I wanted them to talk to. Yeah. So when you if you use a D&D source book, oftentimes uh, when you enter a location... There'll be an introduction for you at the DM that says something like things that people in this town know or like rumors that people in this area know. And there'll be a long list of potential like story beats like somebody heard rumors of an orc over here in the hills or like somebody's little uh, little Timmy fell into the well. Early on, I would try to like make sure that each NPC knew like one or two things, but nobody would ever talk to enough NPCs to like unlock the really good side quest. And so I actually introduced a thing in the session where I would say like, okay, this is like an old school video game where when you talk to an NPC, they just have a a dialogue option called rumors. If you just want to know what's going on, just say rumors. And I'll just keep, I'll just, I'll just read through the whole list. I was like, this this is everything that's going on in the town. And then you can make a decision about what you want to do. It kind of breaks the immersion a little bit, but it was much more efficient to like getting them towards, you know, what they wanted to do. It definitely helps to, especially for people who in, in your group that might not be as role play minded or may feel a little more awkward doing that because it can that that can be one of the tough parts in D and D as you're playing is that because you have these awesome ideas in your head you know that you want your character to be perfectly eloquent and give this amazing speech but you're just not that eloquent and I can't give amazing speeches. So I, I, it's, it's good. It's good to have an option to say like, this is what I want to do. How, can you help me get there a little bit? And so I do kind of want to ask, like it is important to roll with the punches and sort of make sure you're not planning things out too far. But of course you do want to have an end goal in mind. I'm sure, especially if you're working through a pre-written campaign, there's sort of a, a point you want to get people to. How do you balance that? How do you make sure you're not railroading people through making, you don't want to give them zero options, but how do you make sure that they're not going to just completely take the entire set piece and just tear it to shreds? Uh, yeah, I find with that, because you kind of have to railroad them a bit, but you can't let them feel like they're being railroaded. So give them options, but the, all the options will eventually make it to what you wanted it to do, right? Like, no matter what door they go through, that's always door C, no matter what. Yeah, there is a point where you have to, like, fudge the sense of choice. 
like a little bit, you can say like you could go to this town or you could go to this town, but you know in your mind as a DM, like whichever town they go to, they're gonna like run into this story beat because we just gotta get it going. I also kind of use NPCs to kind of like gently nudge the players along. So after a major encounter or like a chapter, I guess for lack of a better word, in the story, I will oftentimes have uh, I have a particular NPC that I know Ian knows is sort of my Deus Ex Machina character who will come swooping in and quickly debrief the characters on what's going on in the next part and just kind of it's always like they can do whatever they want but I want to make sure they kind of know that like okay well but the dragon's here and it's you probably should go deal with that or whatever so sometimes I use NPCs as kind of a way to subtly or not subtly kind of goad players but I really do try not to railroad because to me the fun of being the DM, uh, and this is sort of an interesting thing to think about, is like, why do people want to DM? Like, it should, in theory, it would be more fun to play than like run the game. But to me, the fun of it is really juggling all these plates of story and combat, and then being constantly surprised by the choices that the players make. I'm fine, really, if the story doesn't go where I thought it was going to go, because that collaborative storytelling is what makes it so exciting. Oh, for sure. I mean, at some point, we got to go confront Sauron or whatever. You know, we've got to go do the thing. And loot. Loot's a big one. If you need them to go somewhere, there's loot that in that direction. And they'll go. They'll follow. Yeah, I heard rumors of treasure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I'd like to, before we move on, to kind of talk more about, like, diving into, like, the nitty-gritty of the game. I guess I'd like to get sort of a distillation of, uh, if you were to give advice to somebody who's just jumping in to be a dungeon master what should they have i know you mentioned roll charts you know like something to have to your side what, what are like the materials that if i was going to sit down and i was going to be a dungeon master for the first time what should i make sure that i have on hand the core three books like dungeon master's guide player's handbook and the monster manual and i would highly suggest reading uh the lazy dungeon master by michael shea it's such an awesome book that was what taught me how to not over prep he just has all sorts of awesome tips in there. And and uh, yeah, other than that, gridded sheet to write on and you could use dice for minis. I got a couple of tips that came to mind. One is uh, you definitely need the three uh, core books. I, I highly recommend D&D Beyond, though. If you, can, uh, if you don't want to buy the physical ones or if you want to get the subscription and have those in addition, the D&D Beyond website is a great tool because it totally reduces that like page flipping kind of slowdown that can happen from running an encounter and they run into some crazy monster and I'll have to pull out the monster manual and look it up. I can just like hover over it in the text of the encounter and uh, the monster stat block pops right up. So I don't have to like leave the screen and that makes it really fast. That is to me one of the, one of the only times I really get flustered when I'm playing. I can feel myself sweating and getting like a little nervous is when I can't find something in the paper book. There's always some like obscure thing that's not in a logical place in the book, and I'm like sweating, but the D&D Beyond makes it easier to find it. The other thing that I would think about, and this is something that if, until you DM, you don't really think about, is you need to come up with like a personal system for how you're going to run encounters that sort of keeps track of like all the information and initiative that makes sense. If you're not going to use an app that, that manages encounters for you, there actually are a number of them. I just used paper for that, but I had to come up with my own system for like how I track everybody's health, make sure you're keeping track of everybody's initiative. The only time it gets a little bit sweaty is when you have like big encounters with lots of monsters. 
So you kind of kind of think through that, and everybody probably has to come up with sort of their own system for that. But running encounters can be one of the trickiest like parts of it. Oh, and with that, Matt, uh, I just wanted to say, you're saying you're worried about when you can't find something. Yeah. If you ever need to waste time as a dungeon master, uh, just put a three-handled door anywhere that's locked. <laughs> There's a three-handle door that's locked, and then meanwhile, I'll be looking in this book. Yeah. Yeah, it'll buy you at least 15 minutes. (laughs) I'm going to do that. That's awesome. That 100% sounds like something that would just flummox any group I was with. Ian would just cast Fireball on the door, though. That's the problem. Ian would just cast Fireball, and now I'm trying to come up with like an AC to hit on a door. (laughs) Does the door get a dexterity roll? I don't know. (laughs) I am curious, actually, because there's, of course, a a very big separation between the two ideas, and of course there's a mix, but you can either play with a very map-based, you know, mini-focused idea of, this is my character, here's where I am in relation to these other characters, you know, very focused on range limits, how big is the radius of something, especially with uh, a group that we we play through the Tyranny of Dragons campaign. Uh, We're playing through Roll20, which is a fantastic system. We're taking ample use of the maps that are provided and a lot of the systems that come with that, so we really focus on the actual mechanics of play. Whereas with your campaign, Matt, we really take a more theater-of-the-mind approach. It's, it's a lot more loose. There is a rough idea of, you're this far away. This is kind of, you know, where things are set up. But it's it's a lot less strict. Like, you can kind of fudge things a little more. I guess I'd love to hear from both of you. As a new DM approaching combat, what do you think is the better way to approach it? And just how do you approach combat in general? Because it can get a bit grindy and potentially take long. And how do you keep things straight for everybody? For mine, I like to do theater of the mind for everything except for combat. And a lot of my players, they're very min-max players, and they're very technical with their battles and stuff. So I find it's really good for everyone to see the battle grid and knowing exactly where everything is. And then, yeah, other than that, I usually try to just do theater of the mind, unless you're trying to really wow them with some new big mini that you bought that you want to show off. But This is a really interesting debate, and I think that it has a lot to do like with your knowing your group and what they want out of the experience, whether or not you need to use minis at all. 5e is sort of probably more than any uh, Dungeon and Dragons edition that came before it. Much more loose about the idea of whether or not you even need minis at all. It only kind of loosely, in the core rules, it only kind of loosely mentions them a couple of times. And because a lot of people are coming to D&D now from like listening to stuff like Critical Role and listening to podcasts, they might think that the predominant way to play it is theater of mind. But actually, traditionally, minis and playing with a grid has been a big part of the hobby. It came out of wargaming in the 1970s with like chain mail and stuff like that. So getting down and like measuring distances with a ruler and being very uh, exacting about the cone of that spell is actually kind of in the roots of the game. And so whether or not your group really likes to get that minute about it is something that you kind of got to get a feel for. As Ian was saying, he and I play together in two different groups, one that I DM and one that he and I play in. The one that he and I play in, uh, we definitely have more power like players in there that like combat that like the combat rules they really care about making sure they're maximizing like opportunity attacks and and surprise attacks and things like that so understanding exactly where the enemies are and how they're moving and the exact number of spaces that they can move the enemies can move and the range of attacks all that becomes really important if you want it to feel a little bit more like a tactical war game in fact i mean D's rules could almost be a tactical mini-combat game if you wanted them to be. The group that I DM is much more story-focused. 
a lot of the people, even though we've been playing for several years now, still uh, don't really like think a lot about the exact minutia of the rules. It's much more improvisational. And so for that combat, we don't use minis. And I think it works pretty well for the most part. There have been encounters where I wish we had minis just because I think that uh, it could have been a little more clear, you know, what was happening or things might have gone differently. Like we just had a huge boss fight in the Curse of Strahd campaign when you fight the character Baba La Saga, who's a giant uh, witch who's flying around on a uh, giant's skull like it's a like it's her craft, like Professor Xavier's like flying wheelchair. I think that whole encounter could have been a lot more fun if we could have understand exact ranges and distances. I think I might have could have given it a little bit more of a challenge, but because we were playing it a little more loosey goosey, it didn't quite. Uh, that one didn't come off exactly right. But for the most part, Theater of Mind works really well for creating more of like an action movie feel. Just like, what do you want to do? And I find that in Theater of the Mind, players will do crazy stuff that they might not do if they're looking at like a mini on the board. Like instead of just moving their player forward and going like, I move and I attack, they might do something like, I jump up and grab the chandelier and I kick this guy. Or like, I'm going to like, you know, jump off the uh, balcony and grab this guy and throw him. At, you know, people get much more cinematic in how they think about combat in, in a theater of the mind setting. It does seem like there is kind of this like happy balance, I suppose, where, I mean, yeah, if you do have people that are very focused, you can go very far into the technical side. But it seems like, especially if you're a, a new dungeon master, like you said, Jim, it, it's probably a good idea to not theater of the mind combat completely. At least having some minis on the board to give a sense of distance and a sense of sort of perspective on where people are, even if you're not, you know, nickel and diming people on you can only move, you know, you only do this exactly this and exactly this. Giving people a perspective on on, on what's around them seems like it could be a very valuable tool for people to kind of get in their minds because combat can get a little crazy, especially with all the different things that you can do in in D and D for sure. Yeah, and uh, definitely with newer players as well. So they won't like some people can't visualize like 60 feet away. Like how far is that? Like, so sometimes I find that helps, but theater of the mind's definitely the way to go for description and getting people to be more creative for sure, Matt. Yeah. I mean, a, a moment that like really sticks out to me that I don't think would have happened if we were playing with like minis uh, in this particular combat is there was a time that we were doing this, like the night hag encounter in the curse of Strahd campaign where you go to this old windmill, the old bone grinder mill, and there's three night hags in there. And that's a pretty crazy fight. Before the fight even broke out, the players searched downstairs, and they found these like three potions down in a cupboard. And there was a part in the middle of the fight where one of the players jumps up on top of like a table or something, and is like, it grabs this uh, potion, and is like, I, I grabbed this potion, and I smash it down on the floor. Well, there are two things there, like as the DM, that I thought were really interesting. One is, that's not how potions work. Uh, so it's a wild, it's a wild bit of improvisation. That's not really an action that you could take. I jump up on the, t- you know, there were a lot of things in there that like I had to like fudge the rules on. And then two, the potion itself was like it totally said in the description, like you have to drink it. But I know in the player's mind, like she was thinking this is going to be this like gas. And so this is one of these moments as a DM, and this is kind of another tip that I would throw out is sometimes you've got to listen to what your players are trying to do and realize this is going to be fine. This is totally against the rules. I could have been like, okay, no, if you're going to run across and jump on that table, you, then the night hag's going to get an opportunity attacked, or like, that's rough terrain because there's debris here. Instead, I was just like, yes, you do that. 
All of that happens. You jump on the table, you throw the potion down, and it's a green gas that fills the room. And so I made everyone fall under the effects of this laughing spell. And it totally changed the fight and made it so <laughs> fun. And none of it followed the rules. But to me, I love that because it was just like, so sometimes you just got to be willing to throw the rules out the window because you realize that like, okay, this is a good moment. And it's also a moment of creativity that the player is having. And sometimes when you go like, no, 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 the rules don't allow that, you kind of kill that creativity. If, if everyone's laughing, having fun, you're doing it right. That does seem to be a big part of where things fall, especially as the DM is making sure that your table is enjoying themselves and making sure you're having fun. I want to dive more into that, but I do want to focus a little bit just on the idea of the rule of cool. You know, if it's cool, go ahead and do it. But I kind of want to look at the flip side of that. When is the rule of cool too much? When do you need to hold back and sort of kind of restrict your players a little bit? If somebody wants to do something crazy, but you think it might be too crazy how do you pull them back how do you sort of restrict that and make sure that they're not breaking the game i find yeah once people start abusing it a bit then you kind of gotta rein them back a little and there's usually players that do the opposite right and you kind of have to coax them into it a bit i think you have to like decide like okay is this gonna is what they're trying to do gonna take away like fun for somebody else so if they're trying to like spam a power or a magic item in a way that makes it too powerful, then you're like, okay, that's gonna, they're gonna blow through monsters, they're gonna blow through bosses, and that's gonna ruin the time really for everybody else. So that's not cool. Or, uh, you know, is this gonna like put a damper on somebody else's enjoyment because like their cool ability is like stealing the spotlight or taking opportunities away for other people? So those are the moments where I, I try to say yes to like everything unless I feel like it's gonna make the game less fun for the table. And I'd ha- there haven't been a lot of that. I was trying to think of like a specific example of that. I think there was an encounter that we ran where we were fighting some like zombies or sca- maybe it was the scarecrows again, but it was some kind of enemy where it was like you could set them on fire and burn them. And so one of the players was just wanting to like run around with a torch and just light them on fire, which thematically, you know, makes sense. They're made of dry twigs. But I was also like, yeah, but we want to have this fight. The way I handled that was I was like, yeah, you can try to light them on fire, but they're outside, they're wet. You've got to roll, and you got to roll pretty high to, like, light one. And so he was, like, really determined to try to, like, light this thing on fire and, like, spend a couple turns trying to make it work before he gave up. And so, but if he pulled it off, I would have basically let him kill one of the scarecrows just, like, outright. You know, so I made it attainable but, like, difficult. And so that kind of managed it. And then he quickly, like, okay, I'm done with that idea. And they just got back to doing more traditional combat stuff so that was one way to handle that oh for sure i find too it's really important to always uh, go through all your players and make sure that everyone's kind of the hero you know one person's always like i jump i'm gonna stab them i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do this and then the quieter people ask them like well what what are you gonna do while he's over there stabbing that or how do you want to contribute that's a really important tip and it's something that you have to develop a sense for as you run a few games is realizing that like everybody wants that moment where the camera like pulls in on them in the story and they want to like time slows down and the music swells and they have a cool hero moment and so some players really go for it like they're like i kick open the door and i run in and i'm and you're like yeah and then other players are a little bit more reserved around the table and sometimes you have to set them up for something like if you see that there's a great opportunity there for like the person who's playing the cleric and they're not really speaking up. You could be like, maybe prod them a little bit. Like what if you, you know, 
maybe your turn undead spell would be like really handy here or like something like that. Other times you just ask them, like, what do you do? If somebody hasn't spoken up for a while, make sure you kind of ask them, hey, what are you, what's your character doing right now? I mean, that's a great question to kind of get them thinking creatively. As you're looking at your table, do you find it easy to sort of tell which people are, are not engaging as, as deeply? Or can, do you find yourself getting caught up sometimes and you're missing that? Or is it fairly simple to tell, like, this person's not engaging quite as much as they could? They're making really simple moves on their turn. Is, is that easy for you to see? Is that easy for you to remedy? How do you approach that moment? Yeah, I find it's just whoever's most quiet, right? There's going to be a couple players that are always in there and they're asking a bunch of questions and then, okay. And then, and sometimes you got to worry about, uh, I wouldn't call them problem players, but then you'll try to, okay, well, where are you doing though? And then the quieter person will go, well, I'm going to go to the magic shop while they're doing that. And then, then the loud person, oh, well, I'm going to go with them too. And you, sometimes you have to put on the reins and be like, hey, you're doing this thing. They're going to go do that. Sometimes separating the party can be a good thing because it gives that person a minute to shine yeah. on their own. That, that's a really good point, actually. Making sure that they kind of get a solo moment feels like a feels like a really good way to make sure that they get time to do their own thing without getting overshadowed. That's actually a really good point. There are occasionally like there are people that you will play D and D with who you realize that their fun really is just kind of listening. Either they're just sort of introverted or just their personality isn't to really want to like storytell a lot around the table and have big moments. And that's okay, too. You know, I remember I played with a big group and there was always a guy that was very, very quiet. And I felt like maybe he was getting left out. But it took me a few sessions to realize, no, he's just loving this. Like he's he's just soaking up the story. And then when it's his turn in battle, like he would like do something. And he was fine with that. And he came every week. And I was just like, okay, like some people are just here because it's like this is a fun way to just be a part of a group that loves fantasy stuff. And they're like soaking it up. But it's just they they don't want the pressure of always driving the story and that's okay too D&D is about everybody kind of doing what's comfortable you know because if it gets uncomfortable it's not going to be fun one of the one of the tips that you gave is if you're brand new you want to kind of check with your players and say well what kind of game is everybody up for the importance of a session zero is very paramount especially in all D&D games but especially for a new DM how do you go about sort of checking sort of the style of game people want yeah I find just asking them if they want to do high fantasy, low fantasy, do you want it? Do you want it to be more of an adventurous story where you're the hero the whole time, or more nitty gritty? You might get killed, some more morkbort kind of thing, or uh, yeah, and just yeah, just ask them. That's the that's the easiest thing, right? Just just ask them what what they like and what they're enjoying about the story and what they'd want to do more. Because I find that's what most problems in D anD D, like with the table, you just got to ask your players. Well, you got to remember too, like D and D is all about like the, there's like the three pillars of D and D when you're when you're reading up on it, learn how to play. They talk about combat, exploration, and then like and like social encounters. And so within that, you can focus sessions on different things to give people more what they want. You know, your 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 power gamers, your fighters. You know, you can make sure you give them at least a fight every every time you play, or every couple times a big beefy battle. But then you can slow things down and spend time in town. Or spend time on like travel montages for players who want to role play and tell stories a little more. There's people at the table who like a puzzle, or like something that's a little more like to suss out logic and things like that. You can play around in the dungeon with exploration and stuff like that. You can do so much within the framework of D&D that I really think even if you have a super mixed group of people who are kind of all wanting different things, you can make it work uh, as a DM because there's a lot to offer. I will say too, it's if you use one of the published source books from D&D, they're pretty balanced to that 
for the most part. They sort of anticipate that like groups want a lot of different things. So almost all of the published campaigns will guide you through a mix of all that type of stuff. If you're writing your own campaign, you just have to think about it, you know, and realize that like, okay, you know, five straight hours of grinding through combat encounters is maybe not going to be that fun. And also just spending an entire session on like hanging out in Fandolin and like shopping is also, you know, you just got to realize like, okay, I've got a plan for a diverse experience for my players. So I feel like, you know, we've talked a lot about sort of how you do this and, and, and sort of the process of working with your players. And, you know, some of it may sound like work, but I kind of want to finish this off by just throwing it to you guys and say, why is being a DM awesome? Why is it fun? What is the best part about being a dungeon master for you guys? Uh, for me, it's just storytelling. I love the storytelling and I love do the, the improv of it all. Like not knowing and yeah, like you said, like throwing, uh, getting, being the punching bag and just rolling with the punches and just uh, making sure everybody's having a good time and that kind of falls on you. And if that's important to you and you're good at it, it feels good when you when you leave the table and everyone's laughing and telling you what a good time they had, right? Because anyone that's played D&D, sometimes you don't have the best sessions and it kind of sucks and leaves a bad taste in your mouth, right? So it's awesome when you can not do that <laughs> people really enjoy it and yeah i love uh i love all those same things yeah the improvisational uh storytelling part of D is what fascinates me so much i'll kind of give like a behind the scenes example from like the first campaign ian and i played together we did uh I, the first thing i ever dm'd was the lost minds of fandelver like basic starter set story that is really a great thing that teaches you how to dm it teaches your players how to play I'm going to spoil like parts of that game. So if anybody is like super dedicated to not, I guess maybe don't listen to this, but also like, is there such a thing as a spoiler in D and D? Cause I mean, your, your campaign is going to be totally different, but there's a subplot in that campaign about a green dragon. And it is meant to be a weird side quest. The green dragon actually has nothing to do with the main arc of the story and the player and many players will probably finish that and never fight the green dragon. But just for fun, I tease the green dragon like early and uh, I had the players, while they were on their very first like trip down south to the town, I had it like fly overhead. I can't remember exactly how this played out, but one of the players like really surprised me. She used uh, magic to try to pray to her deity and like, make contact with the, the dragon, or do something to kind of like engage with the dragon like early. And it really sparked my imagination, and I completely like rewrote the whole campaign to try to make the dragon the antagonist. And it was all just because of like a weird story beat that the player did that wasn't even in the book. And it reshaped the whole thing. And our entire our version of the Lost Minds of Fandelver actually culminated in a massive battle versus the dragon in the town of Thundertree, which is it's, it, it, it completely changed than what was written in the book. And none of that would have happened if it weren't for just like that weird interaction between storyteller and participants in the story. And that's what's so fascinating to me about D&D. The other thing I love about being a DM is if you just sort of have a natural inclination to like host people, like if you love to host a game night and have people over, I think the DM is the right role for you. Because something I want to point out before we end this talk is that it's oftentimes a misconception of the DM is that they're the antagonist, that they're there to like beat the players. But actually, you're there to make sure they have an awesome time and you're there to like root for them. And so if your natural tendency is to like bring people over and make sure that they're like taken care of and everybody is having a good time you probably would be a great dm 
Yeah, that, uh, and I wanted to say too with your Lost Minds of Fandelver, like I played that as a player and our group, we ran into that green dragon and our, I think it was Warlock, used suggestion on it and told it to just fly north for the four hours or whatever that spell's good for. And it uh, didn't do the wisdom save, so it took off. So the rest of that campaign, because we just played the box set or whatever, but it was the that dragon hunting us down. It never did find us, but that's how it ended. <laughs> and the DM kept rolling to see if it would find us. It was flying overhead, and it just it never got the rolls. <laughs> you know, so yeah, that's amazing. every story is different, you know. So yeah, no spoilers. Before we close out, I actually wanted to mention two resources for listeners that I think are really helpful as a DM. And I meant to say this at the top, and we were having such a good discussion, I didn't want to stop. But I highly recommend a YouTube channel by a guy named Matt Colville. Uh, he has a YouTube channel called Running the Game, and he has some incredibly awesome videos on how to be a DM that I listened to and watched these videos like obsessively in the weeks before my first game, and it helped a ton. Uh, his philosophy for how to like run the game and make sure players are having a great time while creating a really realistic and fun world for them to play around in is absolutely awesome so i wanted to give him a shout out because he was really uh formative for like how i learned how to dm so matt colville uh or matthew colville on youtube running the game the other thing that helps you out a ton uh, in combat is a blog called the monsters know what they're doing so this blog is from a guy named keith ammon and he writes really awesome guides for how to make your monster encounters like more believable, really emphasizing the idea that monsters are not just these generic AIs that just run toward the player and attack, 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 that goblins are cowardly and a little bit scheming and will try to avoid a fight or get out of it if they can, or hobgoblins have like a sense of honor and nobility about the way they fight or this and so on and so forth. He really like helps you understand how to make the monsters seem like something believable. And that's actually a really important part of making the combat feel not just like mechanical, but like something that really is happening. That the monsters have a goal and they have like a personality. And uh, those are two really good resources. So I wanted to name check those because they've been helpful to me. That's uh, themonstersknow.com and then Matt Colville on YouTube. Yeah, if anyone has any questions, just message me on Instagram and I'm happy to answer anything I can. Like Jim mentioned earlier, you don't want to prep too much. So really, with all the amazing resources out there and so much that you have to, to go with, and if you have a good group, there's really no reason to not do it. So try out being a DM sometime. You'll probably enjoy it. Man, so I'm super excited to play Dungeons & Dragons again now. And talking about it, just I, I, I can't wait. I can't wait to get back into the game and throw 10 more fireballs and ruin Matt's time. It's going to be great. We want to give a huge thank you to Jim once again for coming on, giving us some great tips and just having a good time with us. Jim, where can people find you and what are you up to right now? Oh, thanks, guys. Yeah, it was an honor to be on. And uh, yeah, you can find me on Epic Jim on Instagram. And I'm all up to all sorts of stuff all the time, man, like minis and just mini painting and 3D printing and all that good stuff and collecting. I do it all, man. You do have some great mini painting for sure. I would definitely check his channel out, even even just for that. Some amazing work there. Matt, if people want to get in touch with us, where can they do that? 
You can find us on Instagram as well, at Dice Pirates. We're uh, there all week, uh, updating the world about our shenanigans around the tabletop. Uh, we don't just play D&D. We play lots of board games, card games, anything you can do around the table with friends. That's what we're into. So follow us on at Dice Pirates. Thanks to everyone who listens. As always, we really do appreciate you guys. If you enjoy listening, go ahead and subscribe. Maybe leave us a review or just reach out and let us know what you really enjoyed about the episode, what your favorite parts are. We're excited to bring you some more great episodes moving forward. We, of course, also launched our new news show, so check that out next week. It'll be coming out as well. So stay tuned for more great stuff. But until then, we'll be right here on the Dice Pirates. Dice Pirates.